Mission 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to Total SF Heather Night. Today we are in Oakland where we had a wonderful interview with Christina Carl, our new Chronicle sports editor and really a trailblazer in American journalism. Yes, she was the very first out transgender sports reporter in the entire country. Yeah, I mean, she's a wonderful fit with the Chronicle. She's from California. She loves the Bay Area. She knows the Chronicle and its reporters. And she has a background in multimedia journalism and also analytics, so we can really jump into the future. Yeah, you two talked on and on and on about sports analytics. I think you even are deleting some of it because the episode would have been like three hours. (laughs) But my favorite part was when she told us about being a drag queen. (laughs) Yes, that is uh, in this episode. It is a high point of this episode. We met Christina at Jack London Square. It's our very first interview there. Um, We set up the podcast equipment at Heinold's First and Last Chance Saloon, very historic spot. So I just want to warn, there's actually a lot of background noise in this episode. I think we get interrupted by a Coast Guard helicopter, an Amtrak train, seagulls, and the foghorn on a boat, which was weird because I don't even think there was any fog. Uh, Heather, I never noticed how loud Jack London Square is. It's really loud. It's way louder than the top of Mount Davidson or the rooftop of a drag bar in Soma. So Jack London Square, not sure if we'll be back, but uh, we had a wonderful interview with Christina. We get her sports origin story. Her first major sporting event was an Oakland Invaders game at the Oakland Coliseum. She talks about coming out with her family in the newsroom and which one was harder. And this is the only podcast in history, Heather, I'm sure of it, that mentions Reggie Jackson, analytics pioneer Bill James, and author Ursula Le Guin. And we talk about the future of the Chronicle, too. Good news, she has no plans to change the color of the sporting green. Christina Carl coming up. I'm Peter Hartlob, here with Heather Knight, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Hello, Christina Carl. Welcome to Total SF. Welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle. And we saw on social media that you traveled across the state with your cat. And I understand from Connecticut by plane. Um, What advice can you give listeners? What was that like? How did it go? Flying with cats is a scam. Not only do they count against your (laughs) carry-on, but you also have to buy a, buy a ticket for them, and they don't get any carry-ons. So, so <laughs> there's no cat you're, carry-on. You're buying a seat, but they don't get a seat, and you have to stow them underneath your seat. And so, like, it's a big that shakedown. Is a scam. It's it is a scam. But but our cats had to both fly from Chicago to Connecticut when we moved there when ESPN gave me a promotion, and then they had to fly all the way across the country. Uh, so I don't know if they get frequent flyer miles at this point since they've had to buy tickets, but um, they were both really. They were pretty copacetic about the whole experience. Um, we only drug one of them, and then only lightly. But uh, <laughs> you know, but our older cat is a total road warrior. She used to drive up from Dayton with her mom when we were dating back in the day. So like, she was in Dayton, I was in Chicago, and so the cat would come with, and you know, like make the four or five hour drive, and uh, she just got into it. So she's a road cat. <laughs> nice. 
You're originally from California. Do you have any earliest sports memory? And do you remember when you first wanted to become a sports writer? My earliest sports memory in California is probably only going to involve, um, with California or with Sacramento in particular, um, <laughs> it's, you know, as Sacramento was not a great sports town, I was there before the Kings arrived. So the biggest deal was the Kings coming to town and getting Reggie Theus fever, uh, in the, in the mid eighties was, was, a, it was a big deal. I was so excited when they drafted Joe Klein. I was promptly let down, of course, but, uh, no, I would remember things like the pig bowl, uh, which was the sheriffs against the state troopers, I think, or the city policemen, I forget. And, uh, that being on local television, um, but I grew up uh, on horse ranch, so uh, my sport, uh, personally, was horseback riding cool. and competing in equestrian stuff, and my mom teaching me how to how to ride. And so my first sports role model was mom because she was a tough lady who could break a horse, and uh, she taught me uh, at the same time she was teaching me how to make marinara from scratch. So it was kind of like uh, multi-talented. Yeah. But. All of that, I mean, I remember my, my first Bay Area sports experience was driving down to see an Oakland Invaders game, but, uh, but probably my favorite of all sports experiences was when I came back from college and I took my baby brother to his first baseball game Aww. and he was six years old and it was at the Coliseum and it was a perfect game like not a perfect game like literally but a perfect day in the Coliseum. Mount Davis didn't exist yet. <laughs> um, Dave Stewart was on the mound. Uh, Tony La Russa, like, it was Greg Cattaray's Major League debut. He walked Wade Boggs on four pitches and left because Tony La Russa was doing the lefties situational reliever thing. Even then, in 1987, uh, Reggie Jackson charged the mound. Jose Canseco, uh, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco homered twice off Oil Can Boyd. And it was just a beautiful, sunny day in the Coliseum with... And, and for a six-year-old, had to be magical, and he still remembers it. Aww. So, you know, so for me, the Bay Area and sports is, you know, like even with all of everything else I've always done, there's always going to be a special place in my heart because for me, Bay Area, Bay Area sports are kind of personal. What, what, uh, what teams do you root for? Uh, I've been instructed uh, by Emilio that I'm not supposed to admit I'm an A's fan, <laughs> but there is so much... Uh, of me publicly out there on social media that I've said that I'm an A's fan. I grew up an A's fan. I'm still an A's fan. Uh, but uh, that said, I, I had this conversation with Billy Bean like way back in the day. And it's like, I, I was, I had criticized him in a column on a move the A's had made. And then afterwards I called Billy to talk to him about something else. And Billy's like, you know, I thought if anybody was going to say something nice about that move, it would have been you. And it's like, I'm like, well, for me, my relationship with the team I love most is like, you know, that just means I'm going to be hardest on you because I have higher expectations for you than I have for anybody else. And so that's not, you know, that's that's a good thing. But I believe in tough love. I believe in like, you know, like I want the best for you and I don't think this was the best thing. So yeah. that's that's kind of how I reconcile it with my own journalism, but also kind of my own fandom. Okay, well, we're thrilled you're at the Chronicle, um, coming from ESPN, but I wanted to talk about another one of your jobs that I'm super fascinated <laughs> with. You were working with Baseball Prospectus when it started in 1996, I think. Um, legendary publication, you know, statistical publication seven years before Moneyball was written, not a movie. Can you take me back, because I want to go in a time machine with you to the day like the first one came out. Can you take me back to 
that day and what what it was like working in such a groundbreaking place? Well, this was growing out of the Wild West days of the old internet where things, you know, were not like they were today. But, um, and we only, as a group of writers, we knew each other from the content of our ideas. Only two of the original five of us had ever actually met in person. But we had all been arguing with each other about baseball on Usenet. And um, we decided in December of 95, like, let's write the book that we miss. We miss Bill James's baseball abstracts. He's quit, you know, like he's put himself into semi-retirement to do other things. So let's write the book we want to read. Um, and in our conceit, we tried, and the first book was terrible. Uh, I didn't edit it, so I, I don't have to uh, feel too awful about the fact that it only included 27 of the 28 major league teams. Uh, somebody forgot to assign <laughs> the Cardinals to anybody, so the the first book, in addition to being laden with typos and terrible, and but proof of concept, and the 200 people who bought it, thank God for them, because in an, again, in our arrogance, we look at that and said, well, we can do even better than that, because it would have been hard to do worse. But we also, at that point, launched a website, and uh, you know, so we figured all these people are checking things out on Lycos and Netscape, so we better have a website too. And so launching that, and um, pretty within months, that was becoming the t- the dog and not the tail of the project that like doing an annual book was what we had initially launched in but then we very quickly moved into digital media and expanded very quickly from there and made it into this kind of creative project where people could do whatever they wanted in a sense i I just remember i and i'm i think a year or two older than you but i i remember in college feeling like I'm going to be a print person for the rest of my life. And when digital came, on one hand, it was super exciting. It was opportunity. It's like, I'm going to be part of a revolution. On the other hand, it's like, this is going to be a lot harder. Um, There's going to be a lot more hurdles. Well, but I mean, it ends up being, I think of it as kind of liberating. Because again, you you don't suffer from the same constraints as space. You don't suffer from, you're enabled to do things like in live digital space like live graphics and interactive and what we see today what it's grown into as far as like the stuff that's coming out of statcast and you know from mlb advanced media now in terms of being able to graph define and uh show player performance in ways that not not only inform the audience but are now have having a very direct diagnostic impact on how players do their jobs and how their own coaches are looking at how they perform and how they can improve their performance. And so all of that grew out of digital media and it grew out of our initial obsession with talking about baseball statistics and the idea that, you know, what came from like an audience engagement level has turned into even players rethinking how they play get, play the game and a game they already know. That, for me, is the power of digital media and is, is again, one of those things where I... I I just can't get enough of it, I guess. You came out as a transgender woman in the early 2000s, and you wrote a wonderful essay about it for the University of Chicago magazine, which we'll share on Twitter. Who did you tell first, and what was that like? The first people I told were my three girlfriends at work, Um, and I told each of them in sequence. We would go out to lunch, and I would tell them. Um, I mean... Those were the people who weren't within the LGBTQ community because at that point um, I was already, you know, I would put in my five days at the office, so to speak. And then, you know, on the 
as soon as I would get home, and as soon as the weekend would roll around, I'd be going to the drag clubs in downtown Washington, D.C., and hanging out with all my friends. And so, like, you know, my family, in that sense, um, of, you know, drag performers, sex workers, uh, gay men, you know, like, the, the... the weekend life was wonderful, of course, but then, you know, like I would have to go back and into boy mode and, and put on a face for the day job. But telling my three girlfriends was kind of like, you know, like my first test run with each of them and just saying, and, and it was funny because uh, the code word for, for it was uh, left hand of darkness off of, from Ursula Le Guin's book mm. because uh, we, we, the first one I told uh, Dorothy, she, she and I were talking. We had an ongoing project of like how fiction writers do a great job with who does well with writing across gender, like doing first person like fiction um, in the gender they aren't, mm. and like who does a compelling job of that. And Ursula in Left Hand of Darkness, not which not only explores um, a planet of people who have no gender but also is written from a male perspective. And so, like, and I love that book, but also then, like, you know, we, in part of our ongoing, like, two-person book club, you know, we were talking about books like this, and so we both, I had encouraged her to read it, and then we went out to lunch and talked about it, and then I said, well, there's a reason why I'm really interested in this book, and this is who I am. Um, So doing all of that was really kind of, you know, like, kind of the build-up for then also coming out to my parents like within a couple of months and flying back out to California because that's not something you do over the phone Mm -hmm. Um, and coming out to my my brothers and like you know telling people in person how did your family react uh, my parents were floored and almost literally speechless which is almost inconceivable for me uh, because they're both very chatty but um, my baby brother's response was the best in terms of he uh he just stood up and gave me a hug and said, well, I love you just the same. And, uh, and he's awesome. But, uh, but for my parents, uh, you know, like it was kind of sad because my mom, as I've mentioned, like, you know, has been kind of my sports role model and uh, a perfect example of a powerful woman. And, uh, you know, she'd been a business executive and a teacher and a mentor uh, in, way, in some of the same ways as my father, but in some, of the, some very different ways. But her first response is, well, you're going to have to quit sports. And that was the hardest thing I think anybody said to me uh, because I heard that and I was like, well, you know, maybe ultimately, but I'm going to keep doing the job until somebody tells me I can't. And you're not going to take it away from me. Nobody's going to take it away from me. And I'm not going to give up. They're going to have to take it away from me effectively. And so um, I'm not going to quit on that. And there are plenty of women in sports. I mean, I grew up... um, I, I just I grew up with like with you know some groundbreaking um, um, women in journalism as role models and possibility models that that really kind of of mapped out that this was something that women can do and so the idea that women don't work in sports or sports journalism for me was just like the craziest thing to even suggest in this circumstance now just because there hadn't been a trans woman working in sports journalism before. Uh, I was going to prove you could do it. If anybody was going to do it, I figured I had to try. And um, I don't know. I, it, it. I guess when I think about like the women who are role models or possibility models, one of the benefits I've had 
um, incoming out. And one of the unexpected boons has been that um, the acceptance I've found among my colleagues uh, who are real trailblazers, like, you know, Susan Slusser, who is the first president of the baseball writer, first woman to be president of the Baseball Writers Association. Um, she was in my corner from day one. Claire Smith, a Hall of Fame you know, Hall of Fame sports journalist, uh, first woman working on a baseball beat in the country. She's been in my corner from day one. You know, to have people like that sticking up for you, to have Lisa Olson, you know, who has had to deal with so much stuff, like, you know, with a huge controversy with the Patriots back in the day in the 90s, you know, to have her in my corner, to be welcomed into that group of writers and to be accepted as a colleague and as a woman is one of the most empowering experiences I think anybody could ever ask for. It's certainly, I didn't, I didn't ask for it and I didn't expect it, but it goes to their strength and their quality and their right realization that, um, their challenges are my challenges that, that some of what they've had to confront, I've have to confront too. And so being welcomed into that small group is just, again, I, it's, it's unexpected and entirely awesome. And the Chronicle Sports team has some amazing women, as you know. Oh, between Susan and <laughs> Ann Killian, working with both of them now is a huge privilege. I, I uh, the opportunity to call them colleagues is, you know, like, and work with them directly is, you know, three weeks into the job has just already been just a, an immense treat. As a transgender woman, but also an editor and reporter, um, do you feel like there's more or less understanding? since you came out and I mean I, I got a note that in the news right now you know I, I turn on Washington Post or New York Times my app it's going to be one of the top stories is going to be about sports and we are living in a really difficult time in journalism in terms of reporting on trans stories because I think we've moved from a place of understandable ignorance where most people don't understand don't know anything about trans people to a place where within journalism we've seen some horrific enabling of misinformative like stories and narratives about trans people Mm -hmm. where if anything it it almost feels as if mainstream media's attention to the subject has made the challenges that trans people face worse because you have so many journalists who are massively unready to write about these about trans people uh don't know where to look and where to ask uh just to do basic reporting and instead enable people who position themselves as subject experts, but, you know, border on con men. I mean, whether you're talking about, you know, J. Michael Bailey at Northwestern uh, and some of the destructive and stupid stuff he's done, or Jesse Single and some remarkably terrible stories. I mean, it, it's unfortunate, but it's like you end up seeing people exploiting the ignorance of editors who should know better and should hold these stories to the same standards, but instead are empowering, like, essentially a collection of really misinformative ideas about trans people. And so the conversation, instead of getting easier because it's getting visibility, it's getting harder because people don't want to talk to trans people about trans people, and they do want to lean into how different trans people are from what they might people consider normal, whereas... I would say that trans people simply reflect the diversity of the species of human beings, that we come in all shapes and sizes, not all of them fit easily into any one box. We'll be right back after this short break. So what are some things, you're coming to the Chronicle, been around, what, Heather, 150 
Since 1865. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> we haven't missed a day of publication. Wow. Yeah, even through the pandemic. Uh, what, what are or some... the 89 earthquake. I'm like, oh, or, yeah. or 1906. 1906, I'm 1906 like, wow. was a big one. They printed it here in Oakland. Wow. So, um, yeah. <sighs> But what Sporting Green, it's been around, it's an institution. What are some things that you never want to change, that you don't want to change? And what are some new areas that you maybe you see our sports team exploring, either in the digital world or, or somewhere else? Well, one thing I don't want to change is the way in which the Chronicle understands that not even sports sticks to sports, that... When you have a writer like Ann Killian looking at the intersections of sports and um, society, that um, you lean into that and you lean into the opportunity to talk about like what is the lived experience of fans, players, teams that they operate at. They're they're actors on the stage of you know uh, the public stage and, and within our the society we live in. And so like the idea of of that sports is supposed to stay in its lane and sequester itself away and only deal with sports as a as a form of entertainment and as content um sports doesn't get to do that so it's really you know the opportunity to have a writer like ann who isn't afraid to go there and get into you know when sports means something more than just the action on the field or is in reflects social issues that go far beyond what's happening on the diamond um again that it isn't merely a privilege. It's basically the way you ought to do sports coverage. I, I would love a coffee table book that's just people on Twitter <laughs> telling Ann Killian to stick to sports and her <laughs> thermonuclear response and just evisceration of anybody who does that. And just have a coffee table book where you can read these different exchanges like in your spare I time. was just thinking the same thing. I get a lot of attacks on Twitter, but nowhere near as many as she does. And I look to her for like guidance. And the fact that she's such a tiny woman with... It's such a badass attitude. It's very inspiring. I look at that, and that's definitely, you know, the kind of thing that I love. Um, I love the opportunity to get into history, whether it's the history of the teams in particular. Um, I love, you know, but I also love things that, you know, like one of the stories that ran before I came aboard um, where... Ron Krojcik did this great story on on the legend of you know the local basketball hook who like the local basketball like East Bay sure. hook. That was a brilliantly deeply it's reported fantastic. story. I loved that story because it's those are the kinds of stories. Again, I grew up in Northern California, but I don't know everything about Northern California. So although I'm coming back to something semi-familiar, this is also an opportunity to look at something old with new eyes and say like I I just don't know this stuff and I want to learn it and I think that that's helping curate that experience for our readers in terms of being able to do execute those kinds of stories that get into local history and local experience and what this man meant to a generation of you know like again basketball players in the East Bay like they all knew who he was if they were coming up in the 80s and you know like getting into what you know, the perils of like, you know, that kind of celebrity in a different time where you didn't get to be drafted out of high school and, you know, like the opportunities were not the same and, you know, like how it kind of ended up in a, in a you know, an unhappy spot for Hook personally, but that he's still remembered uh, and is still deservedly a legend. Again, getting to do that kind of story, I love it. I do look forward to, to changing things up a little bit in terms of, you know, bringing a little bit more of an analytical perspective 
and some more sabermetrics, some more um, analysis uh, than folks may have seen in the past. And maybe that's because not only is that my my like background, but it is something that I think is where readers where where readers are, and it's the kind of information that they're readily consuming, not merely at Prospectus, but now everywhere. And um, whether it's ESPN or The Athletic or any any venue at this point, you have to do this kind of content because it's not not because it's a thing it, homework that you have to do, but because you gives you the opportunity to tell different kinds of stories and ask different kinds of questions about from the players themselves and, and kind of expands your toolbox as a journalist. So I'm looking forward to ways we can do more of that um, going forward. Um, you know, maybe that's going to lead to more opportunities for Rusty Simmons to say some different things about, like, you know, teams across all sports. Uh, maybe it's something that gets integrated more into stories that, you know, our other beat writers do. But I think that's something where it has to kind of be organic and and kind of like you know at the same time encouraging people to get familiar with this these kinds of tools and uh encouraging them to think of it as a way to inform you know what they want to talk to players or coaches about as well and the chronicle has an awesome new data team brand new um which doesn't hurt oh yeah i've already been talking to dan Kopp about some of the stories we might do in the future a lot of fun stuff it should be on tap and so it's kind of like yeah that when those kinds of things get created it's a lot of fun Okay, this is the toughest question you're going to get, and they get they get tougher and tougher. But um, <laughs> what do you think about the mint green, sporting green pages? I cannot answer the question about whether or not I am an A's fan, and my favorite color is green, and thus my favorite color is green, or <laughs> my favorite color is green, and therefore I became an A's fan. I don't know which came first. So I love green. I love the color green. I absolutely embrace the sporting green being green so i want to keep it but uh that may be above my pay grade but uh i would love to see it stay you that know, is the right answer every once in a while like someone tries to get rid of either the sporting green or the sunday pink section and maybe they make it like a little pink rim around it and and their careers are never the same yeah there's a revolt <laughs> don't mess with it anyway that's my advice uh, hallelujah yeah tell us a little bit about what the sports page has coming up and some things that you're excited about just that people are going to be able to see in the next few days next couple of weeks anything you can tell us about well as we record this we're eight days out from the nfl draft and um we're really going to lean into that so like uh with the niners trading up to the number three pick overall it is already going to be really exciting to see which quarterback they end up picking what that means for the future of the franchise um so we're just going to do wall-to-wall, lots and lots and lots of Niners coverage, but lots and lots of like looks at like what this means as a moment in 49ers history, um, what's at stake, what they're going to... I, I just, you know, and making room for everybody. Scott, Osler, and um, Eric Branch is doing like some amazing reporting. We just launched um, a story that I, I couldn't be more proud of, the story he did on on the ongoing problem with the way in which um, coded language about race um, still ends up shaping the conversation about uh, quarterbacks and that the fact that, you know, even in, you know, with all of the things we've seen Patrick Mahomes do, with all of the things we've seen, so, you know, Doug Williams, like, won a Super Bowl, like, you know, decades ago, and yet we still end up with these kinds of weird ways of describing black quarterbacks versus white quarterbacks and that how that 
changes people's perceptions of them as players and what they're capable of doing in a way that's totally unfair and totally disconnected from what they're actually, you know, bringing to the table. So the other package that I'm really looking forward to rolling out is going to be uh, Ron Krychek's doing some reporting on uh, girls playing high school baseball in the Bay Area. And that's something that, um, you know, we had um, what I thought was already interesting. We had two teams playing each other uh, down in San Mateo which both had girls, like one team had three girls on the team, the other had one, and so it's like, you know, the fact that you have these cross-gender, you know, like, participation in hardball and girls choosing not to go into softball, um, you know, they might already be playing Little League, but then, you know, like, by the time they get to high school, they're usually confronted with this choice or this expectation that they're supposed to go play softball. And I was like, no, I, I love to play baseball. Uh, the other story that's going to be great is apparently the only woman coaching varsity high school baseball in the country is right here in the bay area she's coaching over at urban and uh her story and again ron is so we've got two stories on this subject but talking about oz sailors and what she's gone through to get to this point um and her love of the game is just tremendous and having people like justine siegel from baseball for all and like the first woman to coach major league baseball talking about how you know oz is an inspiration she's right here in the bay area that's amazing and so getting to tell her story and talk about that and talk about how women can compete and thrive in the same spaces that you know people most usually expect men to be in um that's going to be an awesome pair of stories so awesome uh, looking forward to all of them. So we have a lightning round that Uh-oh. ends every episode. I'm not going to make you answer all the San Francisco-centric questions because you're new to the Bay Area, so that wouldn't be quite fair. So for listeners, this is kind of a changed-up lightning round. What is your favorite ballpark food or drink? Ballpark food? Or drink. Something you can order at the ballpark. Well, I'm celiac, so that's actually kind oh, of a problem. So, um, uh, Is there anything you can order? No, actually, that's true. The uh, I can I can actually have the uh, um, bratwurst with brown mustard in and uh, sauerkraut at in Milwaukee, and it's still great. So, like, that's totally cool. And and I would say that's probably my favorite ballpark food, anyways. So, like, even being celiac, the fact that they have gluten free buns and gluten free dogs, and it's like bratwurst is gluten free, and then sauerkraut and brown mustard. That's a perfect, that's perfect ballpark food. Nice. You've been a Baseball Writers Association of America voter for more than a decade. How many years now? Uh, I first got in the BBWA in 2008, so I think this is my 13th year now. So, yes. Who do you think will get in first, and who do you think should get in first, Madison Bumgarner or Barry Bonds? (sighs) Madison Bumgarner probably will, but, you know, like, and that's unfortunate, not because of, you know, Mad Bum is a lot of fun, but... Barry Bonds should already be in. We sh- this conversation should be over. Barry Bonds should have been in, voted in years ago. So it's kind of, I think, still um, how to how to put this nicely or not so nicely. Um, I think it's uh, performative and you know like concern trolling of a form of you know with the sports writers who are now concerned about whether or not and to what extent Barry Bonds' performance was aided by any performance enhancing drugs i think it's ridiculous uh in the same way that i think it's ridiculous that people are angry at sammy sosa or mark mcguire it's like these guys you know helped re-energize the game after 
the damage wrought upon it by the billionaires who own the teams and with the strike of 94 these players helped save it they loved them then the owners didn't have a problem with them then and the journalists loved them then to subsequently punish them for you know like what we've now decided is the very bad thing is is again i think it it's about it's about journalists talking about themselves that now they're demonstrating their concern as opposed to just saying like look be consistent these guys made history they helped save baseball and we should be honoring and respecting what they did now you can always acknowledge the fact that like you know there were different rules in place as far as performing enhancing drugs but you know that that's again nobody needs to hear from writers who are now suddenly concerned about this issue when um, they were already like not having a problem with it and particularly when you get into cross sports because football and performance enhancing drugs nobody's concerned about those but uh, for some reason you know like nobody's talking about taking the Pittsburgh Steelers rings away from them because the entire offensive line was juiced all through the 70s and they got four Super Bowls out of that nobody cares about that but everybody's upset at Barry Bonds I just think it's it's a travesty get Barry Bonds in the hall and give him a statue um, <laughs> amen <laughs> Not before we get a woman statue in San Francisco. I have been writing about this for years. Uh-oh. That there are only two real-life women depicted in San Francisco's, like, 88 public statues. So. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> well, that ain't cool. <laughs> I know. Imagine San Francisco or Oakland gets a WNBA team tomorrow. What should we name it? Ooh. Oh. And we get a choice, too. Oh, well, yeah, I know. You're probably going to come up with better ones, but oh. Hmm. I've had like four days to think about it. <laughs> why don't Why don't Heather and I go first? Um, I like like the Rock, like because the Rock, there's the ball, and then you've got Alcatraz, so the Rock. Okay. Um, I also like the streets. Like I, I always thought that would be a good name for uh, a team in San Francisco because like the streets of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But Carl Malden fan. Wow. Yeah, I mean going way back, but those th- those are my two choices. Okay. Heather, where are you at? I want the bird route, and I'm thinking the phoenixes, um, because oh, we, the city always, there's a phoenix on the flag of San Francisco. We rise from the ashes again and again and again. We're doing it now after the pandemic, so that was my pick. Hmm. What happens when they play phoenix, though? <laughs> It'll be like the Anyway, okay. Um, hmm. Golly. Uh, what you can do instead <laughs> is just, just decide which one of us won. And then- well... I, I kind of like the Phoenixes. I, think, I do too, actually. I mean, that's, that's better than mine. The Rocks, you know, like, I mean. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think women really want to be called a rock. A rock. All know? right. All right. But, all right. We'll go with the Phoenix. But, but, yeah, yeah, but I mean, I just, I, you know, I, it just got me into thinking about like, oh, God, if they called them the Lady Warriors, that would be awful. No. 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 Lady Dubs. I, mean, no. like, oh, I can come up with never. plenty of bad suggestions, yeah. but we would never use in a million years. Okay, uh, big game. Who are you rooting for, Cal or Stanford? Uh, or do you care? I don't care. I mean, that's where I just want a good game. So, okay. you know. Um, Heather's from Stanford. I mean, she went to school at Stanford, yeah, but she doesn't Stanford. care either. No. <laughs> and I'm a Cal fan, but I once wrote an essay about how, like, it, it, the way they act like one school's inferior to the other when all of us couldn't even get in. I'm just like, they're both great schools. You know what? You'll probably learn when we can go back to the newsroom that there's a tradition um, just before the big game, Uh, the Cal marching band comes to uh, the San Francisco Chronicle newsroom every year. And And always while you're on the phone, (laughs) on an important phone Like you're interviewing the mayor and then all of a sudden. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds fun. But I, I, gosh, you know, I just, 
I, I applied to Cal, so I guess if I had a, a lean, I would say I applied to Cal and and didn't go because I went to Chicago. But yeah, I, I couldn't get in either one, and they're both great schools, and they're both fun to watch. Stanford women's basketball, I watched that run; it was fabulous. Oh, that was wonderful. Okay, I'm going to give you pairs of sports movies, and you have to pick your favorite. Okay. The Sandlot or Major League? Major League. Rocky Three or Rocky Four? Rocky Three. Don't ever let Peter make you watch Star Trek Four, by the way. Oh, I love Star Trek Four. <laughs> it has nothing to do with this podcast. She brings us up every episode, I and it has nothing movie. to do with the podcast. Oh. Thank what, you for what, liking what do you Star have Trek Four. Why, why do you hate whales? I hate the combination of spaceships and whales. It's so boring. <laughs> spaceships and whales. Okay. Hoosiers or Space Jam? Hoosiers. Those okay. were all three the right answers. And then overall, what is your favorite sports movie? A League of Their Own. Excellent. Easily. Tell me a little bit more about that. Where you saw it the first time, what you like about it, what why it keeps being good every time you see it. Well, I saw it in the theaters, but um, why it... I mean, it's all... Like, again, the the sibling rivalry um, is is just wonderfully done. And again, um, the ele- all of the... I mean, the humor... Uh, Tom Hanks is kind of send up of, of, you know, like a washed up former major leaguer uh, and the relationships. Um, I think the extremely well done action on the field as far as like, you know, it's a plausible baseball movie. It's not like John Goodman playing Babe Ruth. It's uh, it's a baseball movie and it, and it feels like the game, but it also just like draws you in with all of the story, the personal stories about like the women playing. And so uh, my wife and I can throw back quotes from that movie over and over again and just love it beyond words. Well, it's a fantastic movie, and you had all the right answers in the earlier one. Major League, Rocky Three, and Hoosiers are the best of those movies. So, I'm sorry, I lied to you. The Sporting Green question isn't the hardest question. This <laughs> one is harder. Um, let's say... Ann Killian and Susan Slusser are the two finalists for a Sports Writer of the Year award. You have the deciding vote. What's your next move? That is a brutal question. Oh! <laughs> it's oh. what's your next move. It's not oh, who you vote for. That, I mean, it might be, you know. That's a conflict of interest. I can't even, I shouldn't even be in the position of making They've that. They've tied thing. many times for awards. Yeah, I know. So. I, that's horrendous. Oh! The worst question ever. I, I, I am not. I am not going to commit myself to even guessing. I no. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. Okay. But, I will. We'll end on on a brighter note. Okay. Before we started recording, this isn't a sports question because I'm not. The that correct into answer, by the way, was witness relocation. Oh, That's okay. the only. <laughs> okay. This was very heavy on sports because of Peter, but I have a non-sports question. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording that you were a drag queen once upon a time. What was your drag name? My drag name was Cece Majin. Uh, I still have a few friends who call me Cece. Um, and what? It was just a lot of fun. I was. Uh, I did it before I came out and uh, for the summer of 2002 uh, performing at Freddy's Beach Bar uh, in in Arlington Virginia and uh, and it was just a lot of fun and the friends I made the experience um, in part I went into it um, not just because I was friends with a bunch of drag queens but in part I went into it because I had not yet transitioned or come out that I figured if I can wear those outfits and do that on stage, walking into the office <laughs> is going to be a breeze. True. And walking into a locker room is going to be a breeze. So, you know, being in a skin-tight rubber dress 20 years and 20 pounds ago, maybe more than 20, no comment. 
but being able to do that and have that kind of fun in some outrageous outfits and uh, um, again, it pretty much prepared me for anything. Nice. Well, I will take you to a drag show when the Oasis reopens. I, I am totally down for that. <laughs> and as the train comes, signifying the end of this podcast, <laughs> um, I want to just say thank you. Um, and we have actually a, a gift for you here. Heather, can you explain this while I... So we uh, made you a total SF welcome gift. Uh-oh. <gasps> so this is our this is our map. Um, our forty nine. We made a forty nine mile scenic route. So oh, if you want to explore awesome. the city, you can find a route that's amazing for pedestrians and bicyclists. Well, my wife and I love to hike and bird watch. So lots uh, of hikes we'll there. Definitely be definitely be out and about. And then uh, Cool Gray City of Love. I don't expect you to read a book. People are always sending me books. I very rarely read no, the no, book. No, no. But, it's but you're excellent. a history major. You'll love this. It's no, a history no, major. History. It's wonderful stories about the city. And if you're on TV and you have your room raider in the background, you put that book up, people are going to be like, that's someone who's... 10 like out of a, 10. Yeah, 10 out of 10 <laughs> Bay Area insider. For, for me, definitely, it's going to be a lot of fun. Believe me, I love... Um, the stories about people coming to California in the 1850s and 60s, I always find fascinating because it's like, you know, people who embrace and fall in love with the place. And so it both speaks to me, but then it's interesting because, of course, it's a very different time and place. Well, that's that book, like an IV <laughs> hooked up to your vein. Awesome. And then um, I, oh, we, we oh. got you a Chronicle pin, too. It's a enamel pin. Honestly, like if you went in the Chronicle, there might be some of these in a bowl sitting there, but we don't know if you've gotten to the Chronicle. I, so I don't have one, but and who doesn't love the old Gothic script? Yes. So like that is amazing. So, so welcome thank you, thank aboard you. and we're excited uh, to have thank you. Thank you so much. I'm <laughs> delighted. This is wonderful. And um, I am delighted to be a part of the Chronicle team and family. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Heather Knight and our guest, Christina Carl. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 